This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, our series, The Exit Interviews, continues. Today, former Labour leader Harriet Harman on a warning to Keir Starmer not to have only men in meetings. The day that she saw Margaret Thatcher bearing down on her newborn baby. And what she wants to do next and whether or not she'll ever really let her hair down. So the interview with Harriet Harman coming up. We'll also have The Columnist today with Rachel Sylvester and Dominic Lawson on vaping and fasting. I'm fasting. You'll find out why in a minute. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Just listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. It's politics without the boring bits, weekdays from 10. Now, it's going to be a long long day. So, it was reported in the Sunday Times yesterday that Rishi Sunak's self-control extends to fasting for a straight 36 hours at the start of each week. Friends of the Prime Minister told the paper he does not eat between 5pm on a Sunday afternoon until 5am on a Tuesday morning. So, in a fit of peak, I decided to fast like Rishi Sunak, bringing forward our Sunday roast so I could start on time. Right, that's me done. It's five o'clock on Sunday night. I'm going to fast like Rishi Sunak for 36 hours. Apparently he does it every week. So it's explain why he's always a bit irritable in the afternoons. Uh, yeah, apparently it will be great for me and uh, my waistline. But does fasting like Richie Sunak means I'll lose half a stone? Maybe I'll lose half a foot in height. We just don't know. Uh, it's going to be a long 36 hours before I can eat again on Tuesday morning. Wish me luck. We've just gone um, 8 o'clock, so it's been, what, three hours. I'd probably have a snack now, a cup of tea, something, watching telly. Uh, and as a real act of solidarity um, my wife just cut eight lovely chocolate cupcakes which I'm trying to avoid ah good morning good morning good morning good morning it's uh, just after 
Um, I don't actually normally eat breakfast and weekdays, weekends I do, that would be you know, poached eggs and bacon or oh, I don't know, even think about food. So it's been, what is that, 11, 12, 13 and a half hours, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's a perfectly normal length of time to be asleep and not eating. And normally I would have a nice cup of tea in the morning, uh, but I'm gonna have a whole cup of tea instead because I'm gonna have to have it without milk. I have to say, the fact there's another 24 hours of this, fill me with a huge amount of excitement. And the question I keep asking myself is, why does he do this? Oh, so what are we up to now? 17 hours? That's quite a long time, isn't it? It's quite a long time. But it's not halfway. No, it's not halfway, is it? Anyway, so I'm going to be fasting, like Rishi Sunak, until 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Will I get up at early at 5 o'clock to eat... Uh, 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 what is it he eats he, he likes a pan au chocolat or something um, it does explain though why he gets so tetchy at press conferences if he's hungry the whole time anyway wish me luck wish me luck I'll report back on uh, how the fast is gone uh, tomorrow The Columnists and we are joined as ever on a Monday by Rachel Sylvester hello Rachel hi Matt uh, no living purpose this week but uh, that's uh, completely fine because we've got the Sunday Times is Dominic Lawson hi Dominic Hello, Matt. Uh, great to have you with us. This is the first time you've been on. Uh, yes, and it, it could be the last, depending on my. Well, performance. let's see. How, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. Never, never. Now, uh, let's start talking about with Rishi Sunak. Um, uh, seems to be decided that lots of activity is the order of the day after all the shenanigans last week and call, calls him to go and so on. Uh, so the, the big announcement today, uh, confirming a complete ban on disposable vapes, uh, which is set to come in force uh, early next year, as well as new restrictions on vape flavours and displays. Uh, this was the Health Secretary Victoria Atkins speaking to Times Radio Breakfast. The vape market has changed radically over the last few years. These are very, very new products uh, and they were very much first marketed as helping adults to, to quit smoking. And we still support that uh, effort mm. for adults who need to quit smoking. For some, vaping may be the way that they help to achieve that. And indeed, okay. we're as part of this package of measures, we're announcing a doubling uh, of the quit services that we're funding, including the use of reusable vapes for those adults. Uh, now, Rachel, as as the head of the Times Health Commission, you also know a lot about this. Do you think is, this is the the right move? I do actually, because I, uh, Victoria Atkins is right about this. That vapes are a good idea if it's a smoking cessation tool. But what's happening is children are sort of starting to use them who aren't smokers, and they're then getting addicted to the nicotine. So you've got all these flavours: bubble glum flavour, you know, unicorn froth, whatever it's called, <laughs> they're in these um, marketed in these very colourful packages, deliberately designed to appeal to children. Um, so it's a bad idea. And the um, Tory libertarians who are opposing this say that it's going to be unpopular with their voters. But actually, the electorate is is overwhelmingly in favour of this ban. There was one YouGov poll said 77% would support a ban on the um, disposable vapes. And actually, I think the polling that we've done for the Health Commission shows the voters do want a bit more help and guidance from the government to be healthy. So um, whether you call that the nanny state or not, 
they feel that at the moment it's really hard to be healthy. If you go into the supermarket and you walk down the cereal aisle and you've got sort of Kit Kat cereal and Tony the Tiger beaming out at you from Frosty's packets, and they're deliberately marketing at children. Um, it's it's difficult. It's not a sort of genuine level playing field. A lot of people feel it's hard to be healthy and the government should do more to help. Um, Dominic, do you think the the, the, the the mindset of the British public have changed? Actually, maybe it's part of the pandemic that, you know, the looking to the government to solve every problem and, uh, and wanting intervention where previously, you know, and I suppose this is, this is the debate which is going on in the Conservative Party right now. Is it the right thing to do to, to act to ban things or is there a libertarian argument Liz Truss is saying... Uh, that this is sort of the nanny state and a conservative government should not be seeking to extend it. It only gives succour to those who wish to curtail freedom. But has the, the mindset of the British public changed to actually be enthusiastic about the nanny state? Well, I think that the British public probably is, is has much stronger authoritarian instincts than is sometimes appreciated. Um, but as for Liz Truss, I mean, it, it's interesting her point that this is um, unconservative because uh, she was actually a leading light uh, when an undergraduate in the Liberal Democrats. And I remember that in 1917, one of her fellow Lib Dems recalled that uh, she was very keen on legalizing cannabis and had what he called a radical liberal streak. And she was putting piles of posters saying, free the weed everywhere. And they were slightly, they thought she was too keen on that. So was that conservative? And the answer is, well, no, she was a, a liberal. And I think, so she reflects a kind of a strand that is within the Conservative Party, but there's also what you might describe as a paternalist uh, streak within the Conservative Party. And so I think she's very incorrect about that. Although, of course, I don't even think that because of her record that her speaking out on a particular issue is really of any help to those on her side <laughs> of the argument. Yeah, you could say it's not very conservative to crash the economy um, and sort of make a host of uh, unfunded tax cut commitments. Um, there, it is interesting, though, that Keir Starmer has embraced this nanny state label uh, and he's not afraid to yeah. go for that. And he's, you know, he says if it's nanny state to help children know how to brush their teeth when you've got children being taken into hospital to have all their teeth out when they're under 10, um, you know, he's happy to be seen as the nanny state. And it's quite an interesting dividing line that he's deliberately choosing to um, create. And I mean, when you've got, so a third of adults are now obese, two thirds are overweight or obese, and 10% of children are obese before they start school. We do have to do something to tackle that obesity crisis. And, and Rishi Sunak may be going for it on the smoking and the vaping, but actually he's backed away he's, he from all those away on the obesity, obesity stuff. measures. Maybe he yeah. thinks everyone should be fasting for 36 hours. Well, exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, uh, Dominic, uh, let's step away from British politics. I was, I was really interested in your column in the Sunday Times yesterday. Uh, there's obviously a lot of sort of international concern about what Donald Trump Mark II back at the White House looks like. Uh, he, Trump's saying on the verge of World War Three. Um, you write that maybe there's just the, the, the hint of a reason for optimism? Well, uh, only this, that, of course, there's great terror uh, in, in Whitehall and probably elsewhere at the thought of Trump, you know, wanting to be friends with Putin, which he always seemed to do. But I, my feeling is he's only interested in Putin or admires Putin because Putin is seen as a winner. Um, and that 
I'm not sure that's really a perception that he might currently hold. Um, and I, I spoke to one person involved in this, and he made an interesting point, which I didn't put in the article, that one of the things which is possible and is very important is what whether uh, we can, I mean, the, the, the world can seize the $350 billion uh, equivalent in Russian bank assets currently frozen to actually pass them to Ukraine. And that's purely a cash transaction. And it's opposed by the Fed and, and the European Central Bank on the grounds that it's maybe a breach of law. Well, of course, Trump is not <laughs> interested in what the law is. Yeah. He rather enjoys breaching it. And it would be a huge deal. It would be a mega deal. And so some people I spoke to in the British government said that this was a possible way that he could actually be helpful. But of course, um, nonetheless, they're terrified of his idea that he could somehow solve the, the, the war in Ukraine in one day. But of course, in fact, he won't and he can't. Uh, and it is, I, I think, doomed to carry on for, for, for years. What do you make of this, um, Rachel? Because actually, in terms of obviously, the, who is the prime minister in the UK is a big deal for people in the UK. But who is in the White House could have a bigger global impact. Absolutely, and I thought Dominic's point was really interesting about he wants to be associated with winners, although it is certain kinds of winners, hard men winners. And I wonder if it's Keir Starmer who's the winner of the British election. Whether Trump will want to cosy up to him, I suspect not if he gets to the White House. Um, but the it does have a sort of real wider ramifications because it's it would be if he did get there back to the sort of America first. So it would be America stepping away from international engagement and turning inwards um, with massive ramifications for all kinds of areas. Um, and also, I think we sort of hold up America as this shining light on the hill, a beacon of democracy. But, you know, Trump basically rejects the, all of those things. He tried to overturn um, or back to overturning an election result. He's not a Democrat in the way that um, we like to celebrate. And that's a sort of huge sort of threat to that um, democratic liberal world order, actually. I suppose the problem is as well, um, Dominic, if you're dealing with any other politician, you would look at what they're saying before they get into office and assume that that's, <laughs> there would be a threat of continuity with how they then acted in office. But it's so, because he is so unpredictable, he says one thing one day and one thing, you know, the opposite the next. It's just hard yeah. to sort of, it's sort of like, you know, trying to get a grip on jelly. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, volatility is his, his middle name. And, of course, uh, again, trying to look on the bright side, um, <laughs> I suppose that uh, the free world's foes, if one could put it like that, uh, would be nervous of Trump precisely because he's utterly unpredictable. Um, funnily enough, just going back to Ukraine, and one thing I also didn't mm. put in the article, but one of the people of the British government said, which was that um, it, it's partly because of Zelensky um, who kind of doesn't look like Trump's kind of guy. And he said, oh, if only Vitaly Klitschko, who was, of course, Zelensky's rival, was there, who's a sort of two-metre-tall ex-boxing champion, then Trump would be much more friendly to Ukraine. <laughs> Oh, so interesting. Well, well, we'll wait to see how uh, how that uh, all plays out. Um, I think we've just, we've just talked about vaping. While we've been talking, Rishi Sunak uh, has been speaking about uh, exactly this. His ban on uh, vaping. He's in County Durham today, uh, and has responded to Liz Truss calling this part of the nanny state. 
Well, I don't think there's anything unconservative about caring about our children's health. But on smoking, there's been a long tradition in Parliament of these being free votes, uh, which aren't party political. People will have their own held views on that. That's the same as it's been in the past. So I, re I respect that some people would disagree with me on this. But again, I think this is the right long-term thing for our country. Smoking causes one in four cancer deaths. It's responsible for a hospital admission every minute. And if we don't do something about it, hundreds of thousands of people will die in the coming years. I suppose there we are, the, the, him addressing that question of what really is a Conservative. Might be something we, we, uh, we return to again. Uh, what about uh, <laughs> uh, what it means to be a, a Labour MP? Harriet Harman uh, is coming up on the exit interview, talking about uh, her decision to stand down after well, more than 40 years. But really interesting, because there's been, there has been this complaint that uh, she... Uh, that, sorry, the, the Keir Starmer's team is a bit male. The, the, um, even Sue Gray has noticed this. One person said to me, there are often more men called Max than there are uh, women in some uh, meetings. Uh, this is a warning that Harriet Harman uh, issued to Keir Starmer in the interview. There should never, ever be decision-making in men-only rooms unless it's Keir on his own. Is this something that Keir needs to worry about? I mean, he, whoever is in the room, it's obviously working, at least judging by the polls. Yeah, but it's about how you govern. And I think you do need diversity of opinion and diversity of experience to govern well. I remember interviewing Harriet once and she talked about how you wouldn't have had Lehman sisters if it had been, if there'd been more women on the board of Lehman Brothers. Um, it would have been, um, you wouldn't have had that risk-taking culture. Uh, and she's, she's an extraordinary person, Harriet Harman. Whether you admire her or you don't admire her, she has got things done through sort of force of will. I remember when I first started writing about politics, there were hardly any women in the House of Commons back in 96. And Harriet was one of the few. Yeah. And she has put onto the agenda things like childcare, maternity leave. You know, she arrived in the Commons heavily pregnant. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's changed things. And um, she's helped a lot of women in Parliament too. Of all parties. The interesting thing, Dominic, talk, talking to her about her, her time in Parliament as well, she talks about how, you know, she didn't push sometimes enough. So when Gordon Brown didn't make a deputy prime minister, and I sort of made this point, but maybe a man would have just said, you are making me deputy prime minister. She didn't want to make a fuss and upset things. And, and maybe that maybe that is, get, tells us something about the character of, of male and female politicians, Dominic. What, like Liz Truss and Sula Braverman, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, there's, maybe, maybe there has been a, a generational shift there. I mean, I think, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, taking this point, uh, I think it was originally made by Christian Lagarde that Rachel came up about, well, layman sisters would have not been the same. I think the point is that it may be that the women who prosper in those sorts of environments do so by emulating the same kind of behaviour. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm not sure it necessarily follows um, that if, I mean, say, Paula Vanell's at the post office did not behave differently to mm. her male predecessors, for example. So I'm not sure that one can say that it would lead to a radically different, brackets, better, question mark, form of leadership. I, I think that's very unproven. One of the things we did notice during the pandemic, and this, this was a criticism, was that when you only had a certain type of man in the room making decisions, they spent a lot of time talking about whether or not what was it? Grouse shooting could go ahead, yeah, rather and than childcare pubs yeah. and childcare schools. I think there's now pretty widespread recognition that that was a mistake, um, and that that balance was wrong. Mm. 
Um, just going back to the Brownites, though, and Harriet Harman, I remember they used to describe her as the killer driller because she never gave up. So she's <laughs> now, uh, it may not have been in her own, um, for her own ambition to be deputy, but certainly for the issues. For other she, issues, she yeah. kept on, she kept on at them. Right, let's, uh, let's talk about me because that's uh, definitely the priority. Uh, I am fasting like Rishi Sunak. The Sunday Times revealed yesterday that the Prime Minister fasts for 36 hours at the start of every week. So from 5 o'clock on Sunday until uh, Sunday afternoon until 5am on Tuesday morning, he only has water or black tea and coffee. Is this a good idea? Uh, let's bring in the nutritionist, Monica Price. Hi, Monica. Hello there, Matt. How are you? Uh, okay. I, I don't normally eat breakfast, so I shouldn't feel yeah. any more hungry than I do normally, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pre-hungry. I'm thinking about how hungry I'm going to be. How grumpy are you? That's what exactly. I want. I'm going to be so grumpy when, later. When do you start? So I started 5pm last night. So we had an okay. early roast dinner about four o'clock. So I have, I've had nothing since five o'clock last night. And I'll go through till 5am tomorrow. Okay. Well, I mean, the good thing about it is, I mean, fasting is very topical at the moment. And this is particularly, obviously, Rishi Shunak has come out and, and, and said that he does quite a, it's quite a heavy fasting that he does, you know, and it's something that he's very much used to. Um, and he'll have a team of people around him, I'm sure, advising him. And um, the problem is with that, if you've never done it before, you know, it, it, it does work in so much that what, what happens is if you don't eat, then your body will naturally start burning um, the sugar. It'll go to its sugar stores and it will burn fat and that's known as the metabolic phase ketosis so you act you will lose weight there's no problem no, 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 no problem about that yes you should have done yes you should have done but you will lose weight but it's how it makes you feel matt that's really important as a nutritionist it's all about how it's making you feel i know people that fast all the time and they do intermittent fasting there's so many different ways you can do it there's something called the five two where that's become quite popular where you fast for eat for five and then you fast for the two days so it depends on how how you're doing it but what you're doing if you're going to follow um what mr sunak is doing then you're going you're, obviously you're going to have this is quite um a rigorous uh, fasting for someone who's not fasted before so just make sure that you uh -oh. keep the fluid intake yeah you know these are the sorts of things you need to think about and of course you know don't forget if, if you start feeling really ill with it matt then that's the time to stop you know it may be that this doing it like this is just a bit too much to go first of all Intermi intermittent fasting for example you could do something like just skipping breakfast and then maybe have something later on in the day that's still fasting I see. I actually started that a couple of years ago. Jeremy Hunt, who was then former health secretary, I think it was when he was on the back benches, he told me he didn't have breakfast and he'd lost loads of weight. I stopped eating breakfast, made no difference at all. Um, Dominic. Because <laughs> uh, of all the cupcakes you it's have all, in oh, That's the trouble, exactly. Because then I think, <laughs> oh, I'll treat myself, I'll treat myself. Um, uh, Dominic, um, your, your um, late father, of course, Nigel Lawson, he wrote uh, a whole diet book which basically said, eat less and you'll lose weight. Yeah, I mean, he also gave up alcohol, uh, mm. which is. Uh, people forget how much, how many calories are in drink. It's much more, well, I call it much more than you would imagine. So, uh, and that's quite tough. Um, yeah, he lost, I think, 12 inches off his waist. Wow. Um, and he was very disconcerted because his diet book, which was a very lightweight uh, business, took him no time, vastly outsold his political memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, which are acclaimed, but he he's rather ruthful. Or was I say he died last year? Rather ruthful ab about that. Um, but I have to say also, um, I rather preferred him when he was, um, let's say, tubby. 
Um, to me, that was his real character. I was a bit disconcerted when he became this wraith-like figure. <laughs> and that's probably true of the public as well. When they sit, you know, when someone summons up in the mind's eye a public figure, if they do, then lose weight. They don't. Look, they don't look like the don't look like the same person. Um, now, um, Monica, somebody just messaged in. Mike saying, yeah. "I think I would prefer my world leaders to eat properly for the whole week. If anything goes wrong on a Monday, then now we know why." Is it sensible for someone in a high-powered, stressful, unpredictable <laughs> job? to be doing well, this? Well, the thing, the thing about it is, is that you have to have people around you that are, you know, supporting you. That's really important. And I, and I think it's really important that you listen to your body. This sort of, this sort of um, fasting is not for everyone. Obviously, he's used to it. He's been doing it for a long time. So his body's become accustomed to it. But for somebody who's starting out on that pattern, um, it's going to take at least a few weeks, maybe six weeks for them to actually get used to it. Because your body... It's a wonderful tool. You know, it, it allows you to eat. It allows you to drink. And if you stop doing that, then something yeah, there's going to be a reaction to it. And I think that's really important because you have to understand that, that when you fast, there will be noticeable differences in your body. But it is very good to balance out your sugar levels. And it is very good for lowering your blood pressure and things like that. I think it's really fascinating what it says about Rishi Sunak's character mm. and almost his politics, actually. If you contrast with Boris Johnson, who is a sort of man of huge, voracious appetites of every Famously kind. Famously can't walk past the fridge without nibbling the cheese. Exactly, yeah. metaphorically and literally. And, then, um, <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, Rishi Sunak is this very ascetic character. He, you know, he doesn't, he, he, he's very disciplined, very controlled. You just have to look at the two of them. He's very neat those very tight suits. Mm. Um, and and I think, he, they, I always think the sort of divide in politics is between roundheads and cavaliers, and he's a roundhead and Boris Johnson is a cavalier, this kind of... I, I, must, I must recall, it, it, I didn't know all this, although of course he's a Hindu and, and this sort of fasting is in fact very central to the Hindu faith. Mm. But I, um, I once was invited to breakfast at 11 Downing Street when he was a chancellor with Rishi, and I noticed that um, he was watching and I was eating, but I didn't quite figure out why at the time. But I, I just thought all, all the more for me, so I, I wasn't too put out. Did he seem particularly um, angry uh, or, or short-tempered when you were seeing him? No, although, <laughs> uh, 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 as as has just been said, I mean, for him, this is completely normal, whereas yeah. when you see you look, you look, I mean, a shadow of your former self, <laughs> you look gaunt and haunted. <laughs> All right, Dominic. Well, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll certainly bear that in mind when we think about having you back. <laughs> I remember Ed Balls did this fasting thing yeah. at one point, and he said he just got he in such a bad temper he had to. I know. I've done, he, I have done the five twos anyway. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible idea, and it's very, very bad news to the rest of the team this afternoon. Dominic Lawson and Ray Sylvester, and of course you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's the exit interview with Harriet Harman. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. We've already said... Harriet Ruth Harmon is leaving us soon. Goodbye. Born in 1950, she was first elected as Labour MP for Camberwell in a by-election in 1982. I was an absolute target for the right-wing media. Daily, the grinding down, the undermining. In her exit interview, she recalls hiding her baby from the gaze of Margaret Thatcher. So I literally saw a, a loo and dashed into the loo in order that she would not even look at my baby. She speaks out about why Labour has never elected a female leader. I think it's embarrassing. It's ridiculous that we haven't with a party of women and equality. And gives a warning to Keir Starmer not to just have a team of lads, lads, lads. There should never, ever be decision-making in men-only rooms unless it's Keir on his own. So, Harriet Harman, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? I should have left, obviously, a little while ago, but the reason I didn't is because Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party and the party was in such a state of instability, I didn't feel that that was the right time to leave. So I had planned to leave after the new leader was elected in 2015 when I stood down as deputy leader, but I felt it was not the time to leave the party when it's such a parlous state. But now the party, I think, is in great shape and can well manage without me. And so I can just be on the sidelines cheering for the for the new regime. It's really interesting. Did you worry that if you had stepped down, that essentially another Corbynese would have got your seat? It would have been another bit of tipping the balance that actually those of you from a more, you know, the centre of the party had to hang in there? Well, I did feel a duty to my constituents to make sure that the selection process for their next MP, who might be there for them for another 40 years, is the right sort of person with a broad-based membership chosen according to rules that were complied with. And that's exactly what's happened. And I have got an absolutely brilliant successor in Miata Fanbuller, who's going to be the Labour candidate. And I wondered whether or not, bearing in mind how absolutely excellent she is, whether I'd feel slightly nose out of joint, you know, with people thinking, oh God, Miata is absolutely brilliant. But I've realised I'm basking in her reflected credit now, although I can't actually claim any of the credit. (laughs) I am claiming the credit for how great my success is going to be. She's really going to blaze a trail. Okay, let's rewind right back to the beginning then and how you arrived in the House of Commons in a by-election. And actually, it's been interesting, quite a few of the people we've spoken to on the exit interview series have come in by-elections and they said it's a bit weird because it means you're not part of a gang, you don't arrive in the House of Commons, you know, with an intake. Uh, You were seven months pregnant. It was at the height of Michael Foot height or depending on the height or depth of Michael Foot's leadership. What was it like coming into the house? What was the House of Commons like? What was it like for you arriving at that that particular point, Thatcher and her pomp, uh, in you as a as a Labour MP? Well, there was two things. Thatcher was in the ascendancy, which was obviously the polar opposite to all my values and politics. And the Labour MPs were a beleaguered minority, even in London, could you believe it? Um, But also, it was overwhelmingly male. 97% men, only 3% women. But that was the reason I was there, in order to be part of that women's movement cadre who wanted to change everything to get women's voices heard in Parliament and break into every 
part of public and private life in this country. I was looking up your relative, first cousin twice removed of Neville Chamberlain. Did you know that? According to your Wikipedia page, anyway. I wondered if politics was in your blood. Um, well, if it was, I'm not sure that there's any influences there it's not really it's not be i've not woken up every morning and thought what would never never what would never do today or how would never approach this problem but you know fair enough fair enough um did your path i mean given that you arrived in 1982 and thatcher was there for a long time did your paths cross i mean was there any sense of sisterly solidarity between margaret thatcher and other female mps because there were so few of them well margaret thatcher was an absolute paradox uh, a, a conundrum for us feminists because we our whole argument was women's voices should be heard there should be more women in parliament there should be more women in government women taking decisions and who was the first woman prime minister but margaret thatcher who was the polar opposite of everything we stood for so but the thing about margaret thatcher is she was not part of my generation who were there in order to open things up for other women. She was there to beat the men at their own game, but not to change the power structures between men and women or equal things out for women. And in fact, when she stood down, or at least when she was kicked out, she left an all-male cabinet. Mm. So it was never part of her agenda, but it was quite paradoxical. But personally, everything she was doing... You know, Britain felt so bitter, so divided, inequality was so egregious. She she stood for everything I absolutely hated. So I was definitely not coming into Parliament in order to be her friend or to sit at her feet and receive any advice from her. And in fact, I went out of my way to um, avoid her. But at one point, I was walking down a corridor, ironically, because it was a very late night vote and I appeared to have a new baby with me. And so I must have just been recently elected and had the baby a few months afterwards. And there was no provision at all for, you know, missing votes or proxy voting or anything if you had a baby. Anyway, I saw her at the far end of a very long corridor and with no doors off at all. And she was walking towards me and I could see her looking at the baby and she was bearing down on me and I had this weird thing which is a sort of postpartum maternal thing where you want to protect your baby from you know polluted environments or extra loud noises or anything and somehow Margaret Thatcher's presence felt to me like a threat (laughs) to my newborn baby I must have been a very postpartum mindset And I didn't want her eyes to go down on my baby, somehow like one of those fairy stories where the eyes fall down on the baby and it turns to stone. So I literally saw a a loo and dashed into the loo in order that she would not even look at my baby, which reminds me not only of how strange my mind was after I just had my babies each time, three times, but also how... What a battle it felt between Labour and Tory values, how bitter that battle was. And so it continued. And, you know, it's strange because I have I know many um, Conservative MPs quite well and I do a lot of cross-party working um, as mother of the house. But I always find I'm asking myself, why did they join the Conservative Party? You know, Theresa May was right to call it the nasty party. And I'm thinking to myself, they seem such functional, decent person, but there's something about them that makes them very different from me. 
Well, it was a long old slog there from having arrived in 1982, another 15 years before Labour got into power. Uh, you became Secretary of State for Social Security, tasked with Frank Field to think the unthinkable on welfare. Between you, you did, and you both ended up getting the sack. What went wrong? Well, I think two things went wrong. Well, a number of things went wrong. Firstly, um, it was... I think Frank Field had been given the impression by Tony Blair, or at least he'd gained the impression that actually I was only going to be a temporary Secretary of State because Frank Field, although he was appointed as my deputy, knew far more about Social Security than me and I was only going to be there as a place filler and then shortly he would take my place. And that was his expectation and the expectation he conveyed to the department that basically I was a lame duck from day one. The Prime Minister wanted him to take over and therefore they shouldn't take any notice of me because he was the big show in town. And... I think it was difficult for Frank because he was expecting to take over um, and it was certainly difficult for me because I kind of, you know, was under challenge from the moment I arrived and also because we'd made a commitment that we would stick to the Tories' spending limits and that didn't mean not spending any more than the Tories. It meant sticking to the spending horizon which saw cuts over the first two years. And in Social Security, that's where the cuts have got a legislative basis because actually they're all in statute or in statutory instruments. So whilst the the profile of health spending was going down or education spending, they didn't have to come to the House of Commons and say, hey guys, by the way, we're cutting. They could actually make plans for the future and just... But in Social Security, it was very immediate that we had to cut benefits. And of course, the most unpopular one of all was the cut in lone parent benefits. And it was, you know, we went all around thinking, how on earth can we stay within the spending framework, which we absolutely promised in our manifesto, um, without doing these cuts? And we got into government on this promise, had to do the cuts, and they were wildly unpopular. And sort of I got chucked out in the um in the outflow of that. But was I did it, was believe it a bit of a in the pass from the start with. Was it was it a case of I will give that to Harriet because it's gonna be grim and and you'll carry the can for it? I don't think so. And the truth is I'm sure I could and should have managed the whole thing better. You know you you can't just think it's everybody else's fault if you get sacked. There's sometimes a little glimmer of a voice saying, mm, perhaps you had something to do it as well with it as well. Perhaps you could have done things better. Perhaps you could have done things differently. But I'd come under massive pressure from being on the opposition front bench. I was an absolute target for the right-wing media. Daily, the grinding down, the undermining. And I think that I didn't have any sort of power and strength left when things got really heated in government with the Frank Field problem, with the lone parent benefit. I didn't have any resilience left to fight my way out of it in a, a, a productive way. So I got fired and I accepted being fired because, well, it's the best thing to do, really. And... The irony was that I'd fought for all those years in opposition to get Labour into government, voting every night, losing every vote, losing general elections, and then we get into government, I get into the Cabinet, 13 months later, I'm fired. However, for my constituents, the most important thing was 
fantastic. We've got a Labour government, we've got massive refurbishment of the hospitals, the schools are going to be better, you know, benefits are going to be better, there's going to be a better run economy. So everybody in my constituency was jubilating about having a Labour government and it, it was just not possible for me at any point to say, but things aren't so great because I've been sacked. <laughs> uh, you know, just one thing, yeah. uh, actually, it's all bad because I'm sacked. So I just was with the flow of really believing in, in a, in a Labour government. Yeah. And I actually had a bit of an exit interview, actually, with um, Gordon Brown. Because when I was chucked out of the cabinet um, and off the front bench... I went along to see Gordon Brown. Who was Chancellor at this point. Yeah, so he was and he said, he said come in and see me, money, yeah. come in and have a chat. And since my diary was, like, empty at that point, <laughs> totally, I was very keen to... I went in to chat and he said, I said, oh, what am I going to do now? What, what am I going to do? And he, he said, well, what do you actually care about? So I thought, well, this is a very odd question coming from Gordon Barney. He knows what I care about. I said, you know what I care about, you know, the childcare, maternity, pay and leave, you know, this, that and the other. And he said, we'll do that. And of course, it was the absolute most obvious and best piece of advice. It's not the position you're in. It's what you care about. And you just got to crack on and not moan about things. So I went out thinking, blimey, that is a bit of advice that I'm A, going to act on and B, remember and tell other people about. And it's so interesting as well, that, that having been sacked in such a public way so early on, lots of other people, and you've seen it since, you know, they're sacked and you know, they sort of, they either quit altogether or they disappear, but actually you kept, you kept plugging away, you came back as a minister, then in 2007, when Gordon Brown became uh, Labour leader, you were elected deputy leader of the party, he was shadow deputy prime minister 2010 to 2015, uh, and then interim leader uh, in 2010, when Gordon Brown lost, and then again um, when Ed Miliband uh, lost in 2015. Do you get fed up with people talking about how Labour's never had a, a woman leader, when both you and Margaret Beckett have done it actually in some of the worst times, following defeats or the tragic death of John Smith? Oh, no, I don't get fed up with people saying uh, <laughs> Labour hasn't had a woman leader. I think it's embarrassing. It's ridiculous that we haven't, with a party of women and equality, the Tories have managed to have two Three. women Leaders. Oh, God, I've forgotten about Liz Truss, sorry. <laughs> sorry about you that. You the nation. Sorry, Liz, yes. Yeah, that, those few weeks, you know. Um, no, I, I think it is, it's bad. But and why, why is that? Well, the only, uh, the only sort of basis I can think of for this is something that Jess Phillips says, which is that it's easier as a woman in the Tory party to be elected to be leader because the, the Tory women are not subversive within the party. They're not getting into the party in order to change everything about it and to change the power structure and change the rules and equalise things between men and women. Whereas Labour women are more threatening to their male colleagues and to men in the party because we are determined agents of change. Now, that is not an excuse for us not having a woman leader, but it, there might be something in that is that you're... You're a subversive, challenging force as a feminist in the Labour Party. As a woman in the Tory party, you're not frightening the men. You're working in collusion with them on their terms. Mm. And therefore, it's no problem for them to elect you. Um, I've read a couple of times now, Sue Gray apparently thinks there's too many lads around Keir Starmer, particularly in his team, not so much on the sort of the front bench, but in his team of advisors. It's a bit too macho, his circle. Do you think that's right? Well, I think that as you get nearer to power, the competition gets hotter. And therefore, a lot of people who might have been pursuing their careers elsewhere think, oh, 
Labour might be going to get into government. I'll have a bit of that. Mm. And they kind of join in. So the competition gets tougher. And and therefore, the the men for whom the power structures and the sense of entitlement is readily there for them come zooming back in and you know it's it's important that we don't forget at this point that actually you get much better decisions as well as better representation if there's men and women on equal terms and there should never ever be decision making in men only rooms unless it's Keir on his own. <laughs> it's a good warning to Keir Starmer. Um, let's talk about something else where you, like you said, you, you'd sort of stepped away from frontline politics, you, you were mother of the house and you know, you said you maybe should have stood down earlier. Then suddenly you find yourself thrown back in the spotlight, um, chairing the Partygate inquiry into Boris Johnson. Uh, to some, the Independent Privileges Committee looking into what went on in Downing Street, to others, a kangaroo court, uh, as, as Boris Johnson supporters said. Um, what was it like being at the centre of that? And were you disappointed that he didn't stay in the Commons and take his, take his punishment? He quit rather than face the music. Um. So what it felt like chairing the Privileges Committee was of enormous importance. And if, if ministers don't tell the truth to Parliament, we might as well all go home because we have to rely on what they say. That's what we scrutinise. That's what we, we consider in Parliament. That's what we base our legislation on. And therefore, if ministers don't tell the truth to Parliament, Parliament has no role. It, it's, it's as fundamental as that, essential for our democracy. So this was about whether or not, not just any old minister, but the Prime Minister had misled Parliament and told lies to Parliament. And with that comes a sense that if the Prime Minister can get away with lying to Parliament, then why should any other minister ever tell the truth, ever? So it felt like a real watershed moment to kind of draw a line in the sand to say no actually there are standards and you've all got to comply with them even and including and most importantly the prime minister so it felt like it was a very very important issue but also it felt very pressurized because here we were a parliamentary committee of seven members and in our sights, the subject of our investigation was none other than the Prime Minister of this country. And that is a very difficult thing in terms of a power imbalance in some way. But the strength that we had is that we were there for Parliament. We were the people charged by Parliament to do this. And therefore, we had to really, I was going to say man up, but that's probably <laughs> the wrong word. We had to be really strong and act impeccably and work incredibly hard and really do it with absolute diligence. So it felt like the most pressure that you could possibly imagine. You know those things where they have a sort of shape of water and there's arrows coming in all around. There was so much pressure on us but we just knew that we had to do an absolutely impeccable job because if we'd have failed to do our job properly, Parliament would have been left completely exposed to any minister saying whatever they like with impunity. So it was for us calling time yeah. 
on lies in Parliament. And what about Boris Johnson leaving rather than facing facing his punishment? Well, once we'd got to um, doing our report, I think, you know, the point was made in our report and, you know, whether or not he stayed until Parliament decided mm. whether or not he should be subject to a, a recall or whether or not he just resigned before he got that part was the outcome was the same in the end. Have you spoken to him since? No, I haven't. I, I don't think he's been... I, I, he wasn't around Parliament no. even much before um, because after he stopped being Prime Minister, he was like doing speaking engagements around the world, wasn't he? So we didn't so really part, see him part, much. He hasn't come bearing down, I didn't down have a to, corridor since. I didn't have to do any <laughs> corridor avoidance. But it was a very strange time because... Normally, everybody chats to everybody and everybody chats in the tea room and people chat to each other in the division lobby. And nobody, I couldn't really speak to anybody because the only, the most important thing I was doing was something I couldn't talk to them about. And um, it was the same for my Tory colleagues mm. on the committee. So we talked to each other. So basically, if you, my call list is absolutely hilarious. It's like, you know, uh, constantly, if I'd have, thrown myself forward I never would have thought I'd have had so many calls with Tory MPs and so few with any of my <laughs> colleagues um, except for the other Labour colleague yeah. on the committee is that we were in a bubble and we had to sustain each other and we all had an absolute unity of purpose but we couldn't share it and you know I think my colleagues instinctively knew that and they didn't come up and say, oh, it's great, why don't you do this, off with his head and you're going to get Boris Johnson. Nobody, everybody dealt with it with great seriousness, except, of course, for the people who were calling it a witch hunt mm. and a kangaroo court and trying to undermine the outcome even before we'd made the decision. Now, Harry, lots of people will know that for a long time with your, your husband, Jack Dromey, you were a political power couple, not only you know, married at home, but you were both MPs. Uh, uh, he, he sadly died in, in 2022. But what was that like, work, you know, having your other half, you know, is bound up in your your work life, your political life, your public life? Expect, because there have been a few, obviously there's been a few uh, married couples in the Commons, but what was it like for you? How did you make it work? Well, basically, Jack and I were sort of working together on the same issues always from the outset, mm. which is how we met. Um and it's quite a paradox for a feminist who believes in independent women doing things their own way to really reflect on how much, um, uh, how important a man's role has been in your life as a feminist. Bit of a conundrum there. But when I was writing my, uh, my memoirs, I was very struck because I came across a copy of my acceptance speech but having been a lawyer I always keep documents everything absolutely kept and you know I came across a copy of my acceptance speech in the um, Peckham Bar election in 1982 and it was in Jack's handwriting and if you'd have asked me did you write your own acceptance speech I would have said of course I did what are you suggesting that my husband wrote my acceptance speech but it it made me realize that that our work was completely intertwined together, him in the trade union movement, me in politics. But we we literally worked as an item all the way through. And when he came into Parliament in 2010, it was really great because he was in the office next door to me. And 
Parliament can be quite a bit of a lonely place mm. if you're hanging around late at night. So it was really great to just be able to hang around the whole time. Um, and when the issue about whether I should do the Privileges Committee came up, incidentally, by way of a Tory woman MP WhatsApping me and says, I read from the Telegraph, you might be going to do the Privileges Committee. And it's like, it's news to me. Um, but when that came up, it was the first big decision that I'd ever taken about what I should do in terms of my own actions uh, without Jack being there to discuss it with. But um, we'd been together long enough that I knew exactly what he'd say. He'd say, is it important to do it? You know, are you going to work your hardest at it? Um, you know, and therefore go for it. So I kind of knew what he'd say and went for it. I suppose in a, in a, in a world like politics where being able to trust whoever you're speaking to, even if they're supposed to be on your own side, in fact, maybe especially if they're on your own side, knowing that your other half completely understands the situation you're in, but has got your back rather than necessarily thinking of their own, you know, political motivations. That probably gave you, maybe that gave you an edge in the end. Well, it certainly did, but also somebody of such political intelligence, mm. because you can marry somebody who's in the same field and has got your back, but has just not got great judgment. Jack had incredible um, belief in Parliament and our democracy and very, very clever judgment and uh, believed in doing the right thing. So that was, you know, that was a, a good place for us both to be in. I read at one point you said someone ought to write a widow's handbook. Is that something that you're going to turn your hand to? Well, I'm kind of sort of resisting it, but... You know, the thing is that I remember with my mother when my dad died, um, she was in her 70s and she had 30 years more of life. Yeah. So basically, it's not an ins insignificant period of time. And most women do become widows. And the whole argument of the feminist movement is that you shouldn't define yourself by the man you're with or by whether you're with a man. And therefore, to walk the talk... In widowhood, you can't think because I don't, I'm not with my life's partner anymore. Therefore, my life has ended, because that's like not that's conflicted ideologically. But it's it's hard to walk the talk. But there is something about when you become a widow, everybody behaving towards you as if your life is over, and I'm like. Well, they're behaving towards me as if my life is over, but I know it's probably about 30 years longer if I'm going to live as long as my mum. And therefore, I must go into that new phase of life um, positively and see what that brings. And actually, there's a lot of women for whom widowhood brings different things. I, I've got to be careful how I say this, but it's like one friend of mine, her husband died and we were all being very sympathetic to her and everything. And she said, but actually now I can wear a tracksuit. <laughs> and it's like, what? No, he would never, never let me dare wear a tracksuit. And there is something about being in a different phase and making decisions on your own. Yeah. I mean, obviously... So what's you know, your tracksuit? What is it that you can do now? Well, Jack didn't ever stop me doing anything. <laughs> okay, so fine. basically... He probably knew better than that. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it... But I think that... You, you can't think that you can't manage it yeah, yeah. on your own and that you can't 
make decisions and things are different. Like Margaret Hodge, for example, after her husband died, she did the public accounts committee, yeah. which she probably wouldn't have done while he was still alive. Yeah. But that was an incredibly important thing for us, all that she did that. Let's move on then and talk about some of your, your many bosses. If you could sum them up in a word for us. Uh, Michael Foote, he was a Labour leader when you came in in 1982. Sum up Michael Foote in a word. I think, you know, in a word, uh, I think, you know, well, I can't do it in a word. He was, you know, incredibly clever, incredibly intellectual, but he was the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's not about his personal qualities. It's about where politics was at the time. Yeah. Um, Neil Kinnock, then, in a word. I think Neil was absolutely brilliant. He is the sort of unsung hero of paving the way for new Labour getting into... So I'd say unsung hero. Unsung hero. You'll have two words, that's a lad. John Smith. Um, he, he represented real hope for people. A trustworthy... Um, reliable, and that was, yeah, it was very tragic that he died and wasn't able to be, and you could tell by when he died how much hope and expectation there was. So he was a figure of real hope. So Tony hope. Blair then? I think political genius, really. Two words. <laughs> two words, two words for that. Uh, Gordon Brown? I think a brilliant politician and chancellor, and he came into a difficult gig at the end of Labour's years in government and then hit by the global financial crisis. But I think that he did incredible leadership in the global financial crisis. And I was literally in the room where there'd be Barroso, Obama, you know, leaders from all around Europe going, Gordon, what are we going to do? Literally. And he said, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. He seemed to be like the only person who knew you had to jump ahead mm. of these incredible forces in order to get some control. And they all looked to him. And I think that he, the global financial crisis would have been immeasurably worse if it weren't for him. He got no credit for it, but history will absolve him. Um, we talked about how um, you were sat by Tony Blair. When, you, when Gordon Brown became Prime Minister... He didn't make you Deputy Prime Minister. Why do you think that was? It was an error. Was it? Yes, <laughs> definitely. He should have done, but I made an error because I should have made him. But you... it was the timing that caught me out because he obviously knew I'd won. So basically he thought, right, she's won. I'm not going to make her Deputy Prime Minister because that gives me some more patronage mm. in the bag. I can give it to somebody else at some other time. Um, and uh, I didn't know at that point, and I heard on the radio... Gordon Brown says he's not going to have a deputy prime minister. So I thought, well, that's odd. Alan Johnson will be really annoyed at that. But little <laughs> did I realise it was me. Yeah. And when I got it, I should have said, sorry, Gordon, this is not OK. I am going to be, same as John Prescott, as deputy leader, you know, having slogged his way to get elected as deputy leader, claims being deputy prime minister. I've slogged my way to getting elected. You've got to make me deputy prime minister. But there was so much turbulence between him and Tony I didn't want to start my first time in office as deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party creating instability for Gordon. So I kind of went with the stability. But a lot of women in the country well, I was thought... Say that. Is, the, is that the difference between men and women in politics? That a man would ask or insist and you didn't want to make a fuss? Well, I think I was too worried about the organism as a mm. whole, the Labour government, and I should have just... 
I should have realised, I could have just said to him, I had more power than I realised, you see, that's the one, albeit having said that, I was only elected by 0.4% or something, so... A win's a win. <laughs> yeah, but a win when you're only elected by a whisker is kind of, you have to start by building up. So I think what I should have done is kick the door down and said, right, Gordon, you know, make me um, make me Deputy Prime Minister. By the way, if you want to speak to me, I'll be at Dornywood. <laughs> I'm sure he'd take that very well. Um, next leader, of course, in opposite, back in opposition, Ed Miliband, in a word. A difficult, a difficult hand for him to 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 deal with after uh, a very divisive contest between him and his brother with Labour out, out of power after so long. Uh, everybody looking to the new mm. uh, impossible task, I'd say, for him. Uh, and then Jeremy Corbyn. Disaster. Um, do you think you play... Because in the chronology of it, uh, Edmund Aban stood down in, what, May 2015. You were then acting leader. And there's this famous vote, now infamous vote, on welfare cuts in 2015... Uh, where you whipped the party to back the welfare cuts and sort of Corbyn sort of weaponised that. And some people have sort of said, it's all Harriet's fault. Well, Is that fair? I didn't whip the party to back um, welfare cuts. We had a bill, the Welfare and Employment Bill, uh, and it had in it a million extra apprenticeships as well as terrible cuts. Um, uh, <coughs> terrible cuts in benefits, sorry. <coughs> so... There were some things in the bill that we strongly supported and some things we didn't support. So what I said was, there are some things in the bill that we support and some things we don't support, so therefore we won't vote against it at its first outing in the Commons, but if it comes back unamended, we will vote against it then. Well, that sort of tactical nicety was a mistake. I should have just said, the Tories are all disastrous. They, we absolutely, you know, they're terrible. We're going to vote against everything. But I was... I was trying to protect us from being accused of not supporting apprenticeships. I mean, and then that was then completely misrepresented. And that misrepresentation was weaponised yeah, by, um, by the Corbyn campaign with me as the villain of the piece. One thing about being in retirement, which is going to be quite restful, is not being attacked by my own side, <laughs> because there won't be any point in attacking me. So... Um, this, um, it feels like this welfare is a sort of bookends. You had the think, young thing about in like basically given an impossible task in '97, and then in 2015, the same thing comes along. That labour and welfare is a sort of recurring issue. One of the one of the policies in that bill that you were not voting on in 2015 was the two child benefit yeah. cap. That debate's coming around again. Should do you think Keir Starmer should commit to scrapping that that cap on only being allowed to claim benefits for, t for two children? Well, I think Keir Starmer's absolutely right to say that we are opposed to that. We voted against it um, and that there are many, many things that have got to be put right if and when Labour gets into government. And that will be on the list and no doubt have a high priority. But at the point, this point in time, in terms of things like benefits, we just don't know how quickly we'll be able to redress and indeed in terms of the health service and education, all the things that need investment, you know, we can't put a time scale on those. We can say what matters and what doesn't matter. Um, and that's the approach that he's taking. And I think he's absolutely right on that. But I think the fact that he's not saying, even though I haven't even been able to look at the books, I'm going to change all these benefits, that is not because he's in favour of those benefit cuts. Um, it's because he knows we've got to have fiscal stability and not do what Liz Truss did 
and completely stuff the economy, a price which is still being paid by everybody in this country. I, I, should, I jumped a bit ahead of myself then. Uh, uh, sum up Keir Starmer in a word. The right person at the right time <laughs> for saving the country. Uh, very good. Uh, let's, turn, let's just round off then with some, some classic exit interview questions. What did you dislike most about the job? Um, I think the feeling of jeopardy the whole time. But I think that comes with um, the privilege of public office, is you always feel you're one comment away from disaster. And I still feel that point of jeopardy. I'm thinking, can I get to when I stand down without doing something terrible? You know, I'm all the time on guard. I mustn't run over a cyclist or make a mistaken return on my expenses no no but but you know what i mean it's (laughs) like the small thing that can blow up again well you just you've got to always be doing things by the book really really carefully and also you can be yeah so that's it's it's that feeling of jeopardy anything you do that in everybody else's life would just be moved on with become a great big huge uh, row and make you subject to all sorts of mm. criticism. So I'll be looking forward to leaving that behind. <laughs> Not that I'm going to go wild when I retire, but no. well, I, I might Maybe put actually. A on. You haven't been able to go wild since 1982. Yeah. So perhaps, you know. What does, what does Harriet Harman going wild look like? I've absolutely no idea. So out of touch with that <laughs> wild woman, you know. Um, Given what we've talked about, you know, the, the abuse that you've had over the years and the Harriet Harl person and the, you know, the threats and the, you know, the fact that it's actually got worse with social media and all of that. Sometimes it sounds like being an MP is a pretty grim job. Would you recommend it to someone else, to someone in your family or somebody you, you, you knew and cared about outside politics? Would you recommend oh, it as a job? Totally, because there's nothing more amazing than being able to work in a cause you believe in and to be able to make a difference. It's an absolute privilege it's tough but it's worth fighting for and there isn't anything that isn't tough if it's worth fighting for you're also described as a trailblazer because you you know one of what 11 labor women in the Commons when you got there do you feel like you've blazed a trail if you got everything done that you wanted to get done i think i can look back feeling i really did my bit i really worked hard i really worked for change, which is good change. But we were a whole generation of women that did that, women breaking into uh, journalism and broadcasting, breaking into the law, breaking into business, breaking into the public sector. We were a generation of women who thought that the idea that we should just sit at home and look after our husbands was not for us. And we did make that really big change. So I only look back thinking how lucky I was to be part of that great women's movement. And as luck would have it, because we did so badly in the 1983 election, all of the sisterhood that had got themselves selected to be in what was supposedly safe Labour seats, I was expecting them to come along in 1983 and none of them showed up because they didn't win. So I won because I was in a very safe seat and then was on my own being the political wing of the women's movement for far too long until I was joined by all the women in 1997, which was fantastic. Which is a long old time later. So then, the last exit interview question then, what will you do next? I've no idea. And at the moment, I find it quite hard to look beyond that. But one of the things I know I'll be doing is chairing the Fawcett Society, which is the national organisation of women fighting against discrimination. And there's a good old load of discrimination still going on, so I'm going to have my work cut out on that. So I'll be able to be speaking about the future government, the Labour government, hopefully, without fear or favour. One last question that struck me, given all the other people who've got honours. 
Have you been offered a damehood? I could have made myself a dame. Could you? Actually, yeah, I could have done when I was acting leader. I made some <laughs> other people a dame. Yeah. I made Margaret Hodge a dame. I don't know. It just never occurred to me to want to be a dame. Still time. I'm hoping to jump over that, oh. the damehood, and go into the House of Lords. Into the House of Lords. Very good. But we'll wait and see on that one. Well, Harriet Harman, soon to be Baroness Harman. Uh, thanks so much for joining us for your exit interview on Times Radio. I don't want to see you go, but darling, you better go yeah, I do wonder what Harriet Harman letting her hair down will actually look like. If you want to listen back to any of the previous exit interviews, just search exit interviews wherever you're listening to politics without the boring bits. Don't forget you can get in touch by emailing me matt at times.radio. But from now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.